Welcome to the Hive Poetry Collective here on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. I'm your host this evening, Julie Murphy, and today we have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Barbara Rockman from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Barbara is the author of Sting and Nest, winner of the New Mexico Arizona Book Award. Her 2019 collection, To Cleave, University of New Mexico Press, received the National Press Women Poetry Book Prize. Recipient of the Baskerville Poetry Prize, New Mexico Discovery Award, and the MacGuffin Prize, her Pushcart Prize-nominated poems appear in Calix, Cimarron Review, Bellingham Review, Terrain.org, Thrush, Nimrod, Lowville Review, and Poetry Daily, among many others. Barbara teaches poetry and memoir at Santa Fe Community College at Esperanza Sheltered for Battery Families and in Community Workshops. She earned her MFA in writing from Vermont College of Fine Arts and lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico. It's a pleasure to have you with us, Barbara. I'm looking forward to talking to you. In your most recent book, To Cleave, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how this collection of poems uh, came about. Um, this book took many years to compile. I seem to be a person who um, does not write the project book with a goal in mind or a, or a project or theme. So, um, yeah, it was a it was a gathering of poems over probably eight years, maybe more. Mm -hmm. And as I gather them, the poems that I love, I start to see threads that braid through, themes that seem to be um, the most resonant. And then I, I cluster them uh -huh. um, according to that. So, you know, there are a lot of poems in this book about marriage, the long marriage, poems about aging, some inevitable poems for me about childhood um, and motherhood mm -hmm. and um, and death. So mm -hmm. it's an arc of uh, of a life, and I and and I certainly feel it's also a continuation of my first book, which I guess you would call these books confessional poetry. Though a lot of people get roused up about that term, <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> I admit to that that is what who I am, a lyric confessional poet. <laughs> <laughs> well, having just read your book cover to cover, um, I'm I'm glad for that. Uh, Good. This is a really, really wonderful collection of poems. And um, maybe we could just jump right in. And you could start with one of the book one of the poems early in the collection, Absence of Wind. I'd love to read it. So um, this poem includes a Hebrew word, ruach, which translates as breath of God or wind. Absence of wind. Windless dawn reties her sash. What has fallen remains fallen. What has splintered will not be sutured. Windless noon, tides recede, 
nothing strewn, nothing stolen. A small room opens its door. One thought, two breaths. What does a body do robbed of velocity? How does a throat bereft of ruach shape its plea? Night, star becalmed and reluctant to speak. A cry shudders dark grasses, bones crack between teeth. Give me the brow absent of doubt and need, arms hung useless, sails collapsed. In the trees, no rustle and bow. In the field, no one flees, no disaster rising at sea. Ruach, what quavers the throat's dark coil and returns to it, song. Let fever lift, may the pond rest unriffled. May the blossoms be given one more day to be praised. Beautiful, just beautiful. There's so many things in this poem that I really love. Even just to begin with it, introducing the Hebrew at the beginning of the poem and using language as part of the subject of the poem. It's very successful. And the play of that breath of God in wind carries through the whole poem really beautifully. Our listeners can't see this poem on the page, mm -hmm. but this poem has a fair amount of white space. It's not lined up on the left margin in, the, in a traditional way. You have um, phrases that are set off by a little bit of white space, and some of the uh, lines are almost in couplets or threes or standalone. So there's a lot just looking at Looking at the poem on the page, you see the movement of breath going through mm -hmm. the poem. That's quite remarkable. And oh, thank, thank you. Welcome. Thank you for seeing all that in the poem. <laughs> I appreciate it. And I think this poem, in a way, shows so many of your strengths as a poet. The phrases, where your images are so strong in the phrases, like a, a small room opens its door. We feel the opening in that mm -hmm. line. I also really, in this poem, I really love the line, a cry shudders dark grasses. Mm -hmm. It's so unexpected. Hmm. And there's a lot of broken body in this poem. Bone cracks between teeth. Arms hung useless. Sails collapsed. So such strong evocative images throughout the poem. Another thing that this poem is so strong in is the use of the grammatical mood mm -hmm. so that the poem starts with declarative phrases, not even sentences, but phrases. Windless noon, tides recede, nothing strewn, nothing stolen. And then it moves into the interrogative. What does a body do robbed of its velocity? And there's a pause there, there's space. How does a throat bereft of ruha shape its plea? And then it comes back to the declarative and then it gives us more questions. And then it tells us a little bit more. And then in the very end, it really shifts into the subjunctive, almost liturgical. Mm. Let fever lift. May the pond rest unrifled. May the blossoms be given 
one more day to be praised. And then we really feel that whole spiritual uplift at the end of the poem. It's just so beautiful. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to have somebody read your work so closely. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, it's it's a real pleasure to do. I mean, the, your copy of the book that I have is now dog-eared and scribbled <laughs> all over. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I'm wondering, you know, maybe if you have anything to say about how you approach the line and um, just kind of the structure of this poem, how much of that is conscious and how much of that is just your own poetic style coming through Hmm. so such a good question and so hard to answer um i really am such an intuitive poet i uh i i revise a lot i revise endlessly and um I think what I hoped for with the space in this poem was some of the things that you mentioned um, to encapsulate or embody the experience. Um, yes. This poem definitely drew on my own landscape where I do hear coyotes at night. I do go out at night. The wind in New Mexico can be voracious and and scary at different times of the year um and i was certainly thinking about um natural disasters that were occurring and continue to occur Mm -hmm. and the the hope for some some space from that some freedom from that um the absence of doubt and need the arms hung useless, sails collapsed, all of that for me referred to, please, can we have some respite from um, our own personal anguish and the challenges of the natural world? Yeah. So I I guess I just needed some space around all of that. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and we really, you know, the emotion and that that longing, really, that longing for space really comes through the poem. And and it comes through those images and and the phrases, the way that the phrases are broken up with the space. It's it's really quite remarkable. Well, maybe you could read us another poem. Um, Maybe we could move to Flying Home from the Pacific Coast Rim. I consider the Rio Grande Rift. All right. So um, a little backstory on this poem. For uh, many years, I've been going to the Northern California coast to spend time with a group of beloved women writers. Unfortunately, we couldn't go this year. Um, And that landscape, compared to the landscape that I live in couldn't be more different. Um, The lush, wet, fogginess of it versus the high desert, dry, high altitude where I live. So this is that poem about um, the conflict of loving two places. Flying home from the Pacific Coast Rim I consider the Rio Grande rift. The aerial view is shatter, web sprung, wrung out. 
alluvial fan cools the surface, freezes it varicose. Cheeks wind-seared, thighs laced with dark ganglia. A hewn place where suffering is long and softening is brief. Not the misted coast, not the wavering line of pelicans into which the laggard is welcomed, nor the meadow of poppies tendering thin orange cups. Strata's slow reveal, crimson, cardamom, and glare repeat down canyon walls. There is a pattern to my country, to why I resist beauty's collapse, why I seek other than this. Suffering is long and softening is brief. Not the deer bringing her young to high grass, not her mate's furred antlers alert to incident, nor the seal's heft slapped to rock. I return to malignancies, scarred mesa, reshuffling of silt. What was once ocean is fossil and drought. Not torqued spruce whose roots clamp eroding bluff, nor fog-dipped tides crest and spit, then quieter sequined. Of two countries, I press one knee into damp pine duff, one into cold-pressed beach. Dangle one leg over canyon rim, one curled in a heap of shards. Settle into what opposition might teach. It is eternal, it is brief. Blown poppies whisper, the hawk circles. I may or may not be home. Beautiful, just beautiful. You, you know, you spoke in the beginning about um, the opposite places being, you know, loving two places. And you really give us the experience of that. You know, oh, really, I'm so glad. <laughs> I really feel the love. And there's so much push and pull in the poem. You know, can really feel the, the speaker going back and forth uh, between these places. And the language that you use is so embodied, you know, right from the, you know, the second little stanza there, freezes it varicose, cheeks wind-seared, thighs laced with dark ganglia. We really feel the earth as a body, like as a living body. And I think your use of, you know, what we call the via negativa, where you're saying it's not this, not, not. And you, you come back to that several places uh, in the poem. That use of negation really adds to the tension. Yeah, I mean, this, this um, theme, which I honestly wasn't as aware as I am now after doing a number of readings from this book over the last year, this theme of opposition as something that a number of people have pointed out to me, that yes. in fact the word appears more than once in the book. I mean, it's so interesting <laughs> how you don't know what you're doing until right. you stand yeah. back from it and um, gather these things together. 
yeah, I certainly was feeling that sense of embodiment and wanting the female body to be part of this poem. And yeah, definitely there's a, I have such a passion for water and ocean and grew up in New England and long for lakes and rivers and all of that. And so any coast feels just so inviting and enriching to me. And then there's the the gorgeous beauty of New Mexico is, yeah. is astounding as well. So yeah. which place is home? I don't know. I think well, we can have more than one home. <laughs> absolutely. And I, I think the, um, you know, kind of the way you come to the last line, I may or may not be home. It's such a surprise at the end of the poem. It's inevitable. The poem is leading there. Um, but it opens that question of what is home and where do we feel at home and and are we ever home and are we ever home home? yeah yeah the whole life is a journey exactly yeah it's really beautiful it's just really beautiful and i i had noticed in reading the collection that you use opposition in many of your poems that you go back and forth between seemingly opposite things to kind of come to a new realization so i'm glad that you spoke to that that you you know that was something that you noticed later it's really wonderful well listeners if you're just tuning in we are here on ksqd santa cruz 90.7 fm this is the hive poetry collective and i'm your host this evening julie murphy we're speaking with santa fe poet barbara rockman Barbara, I think it would maybe be a good time to move into some of your poems on the theme of marriage. And maybe you could start with While She Slept, Her Husband Made Chai. Sure, I'd be happy to read that. Um, This is actually the, um, the poem from which the title of the book came. To Cleave is the title of the book. While She Slept, Her Husband Made Chai. To Cleave. Crack, splinter, stick fast to. Crushed cardamom, clove, peppercorn. It was for a purpose, mortar and pestle. His wrist, scoop into black tea. Not a man of kitchens. He smashed black star tips. Late kitchen, dim kitchen, black kitchen, she'd blunder into walls while he slept, chai steeped. Her hands held out as if it were her mother's spice brownie she wanted, mother and her spices on plastic spinners. All over the house, flies settled, little clove flies. Star cow, cloven child, how soft night was. Clove darts into orange flesh, that pleasure. A whole language of the cloven, the cleaved. Wonderful. Again, this poem opens with language, to cleave. Yeah. And uh, what what a great title for the collection and how great to have it come not from the title of the poem, but from that first line. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so happy with that title. I initially, the title included the whole definition with the multiple 
uh, crack, splinter, etc. But my editors said, no, 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 that is unwieldy <laughs> and, and condescending to your readers. Everybody knows that to cleave is one of those words with multiple meanings. Yeah. So yeah, I'm very happy with that's the title of the book. Yeah, yeah, it's just really beautiful. And to go from to cleave into the crushed cardamom, mm. right into the details of the spices, you know, where again it's very embodied. We can smell them. If you had just said cardamom, it wouldn't have been as sensory as the crushed. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, one of the things that stands out. I think that this poem is emblematic of in your work is your strong word choice. Hmm. Like even to start with to cleave and then the verbs that you have crushed, scoop, smashed, steeped, Mm -hmm. you know, they're very strong verbs and you show so much restraint in your poems. You're not explaining to us you're just giving us the images, you're giving us the metaphors, and you're trusting your reader. Like the speaker in these poems really trusts the reader to draw on their own experience, uh, to follow along. And the, the language choices really help us do that. That's, you know, I think that's what every poet hopes for. And I, that's a long process of, um, working as a poet and and for me anyway to keep learning that one of my teachers marie howe always says write the poem and then cut out two-thirds of the language and and in many ways she's right and it's something that happens over time i encourage my students to do the same thing to um in many cases less is more And yet a long discursive narrative poem can be a joy to read as well. So, um, well, this one felt really good and almost experimental to write for me because it was more abbreviated than, than most. And I also think that it, um, it contains the tension, the, it sets up in some ways, the, the tensions and conflicts and ups and downs within a marriage that are explored a little bit more in the book further on. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's true. I mean, this was actually a, you know, for many <laughs> years, my husband literally would be making chai, these big pots of chai at night. And because I'm an insomniac, I would stumble into the kitchen after he had fallen asleep. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, the, so our world gives us the material for our poems, yes. I think. And yeah. I, I think if we're witnessing, it's all there. Well, right. And the way that you give this to us is so much more direct and profound than the story of it. Mm-hmm. You know, you've, you've taken this a little bit out of the narrative yeah. and into the experience of it. And you know, the language that that whole little section on late kitchen, dim kitchen, black kitchen, she'd blunder into balls while he slept. But the, 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 the use of repetition and the sound mm-hmm. is such a pleasure. And we're in there blundering with her. Yeah. Uh, in, in those so yeah, yeah, I love sound. If anything, I need to... Uh 
restrain myself sometimes <laughs> being overly sound driven but well, it's, it's often what it's often what initiates a poem for me it's uh -huh. just a whiff of of language that that appeals to me well and it, it we have the song i remember frank gaspar uh in a workshop i took with him years ago and he was talking about poetry and how you know, it used to be recited before written word. You know, poetry was song, song was poetry. And when you read poetry aloud, the lungs are like a bellows mm. moving and it's the sound and the rhythm yeah. that moves us through the poem. And your work is very strong with that. And that's one section where that's uh, really evident. We feel the bellows. Yeah, thanks. Really yeah, I mean, the people that I read tend to be, the people I read daily almost for inspiration are people who are inventive and musical with language. They um, are the ones that inspire me. And I hope for that in, when I'm reading anybody's work. I'm always looking for the music in the language because it's a joy. Yes, it is a joy. It's just a real, real pleasure. Uh, I was going to ask you this a little bit later on, but maybe since you're talking about it, maybe you could name a couple of those poets that you have been reading where this is true. Um, Charles Wright is one person who I read frequently and partly for his kind of spiritual intention, but also um, the music in his work is just fantastic. He's mm -hmm. inspired me hugely. Um, another person, a couple of people that I'm reading right now, um, lovely young poet named Layla Chatty has a new book called Deluge out. And, and again, her language is lyrical and musical and gorgeous. Um, Lucy Brock Broido is somebody that I go back to all the time. And I think, you know, her her sounds and her music are wonderful, but also her her way of phrasing and her what the subject she mysteriously delves into. Yeah. Um, yeah, they just yeah. excite me. So yeah. those That's are great. a few. That's great. And uh, listeners, if you come to the Hive Poetry website, hivepoetry.org, we will have links to these uh, different poets and Barbara's book and all of the reference we're making. So don't worry if you didn't catch all of those names as Barbara was talking about them. So you spoke a little bit earlier about the sections in your book and the ordering of your poems. And um, I'm wondering if you could maybe say just a little bit more about that process of gathering your poems over time and and seeing how they speak to each other well the book was uh gathered into various sections over a number of years and revised and shifted and shuttled about and changed and when i ended on this um, idea of seven sections which is a lot of sections for a book of poetry i wasn't sure that that would be the final 
edit approved by UNM Press, but they seemed supportive of that. And I think that um, there's chronology is part of it, like literal chronology of a life. There oh. are definitely the themes, the marriage poems are clustered purposely together, pretty much. Though I also try to thread a little bit of everything into each section. I was pretty brave with this book of just saying, I'm going to try to put this poem about a tsunami in this section and see how it works. And I think it's working. Um, so it is intuitive for me. I mean, I shuffle and reshuffle and and then settled on things that also um, definitely images and shared images in poems, I hope will one image may lead to the next poem. So there's kind of a subtle undercurrent um, of, of continuity. Yeah, I, I think it's very successful. I really, uh, and I appreciated having the little breaks you know, it was as I was reading the book of just having another little section and being able to kind of pause and digest the poems I had just read and then be surprised by the next unfolding. Yeah. That, was, uh, that was very nicely done. I think we're probably close to station identification. This is the High Poetry Collective. You can find the High Poetry Collective on Facebook, the High Poetry Collective on KSQD. And you're welcome to leave comments about our shows or the podcasts or anything you like about poetry. And you can visit our website, hivepoetry.org. Follow us on Twitter, at Hive Poetry. And Spotify, iTunes, and anywhere you get your podcasts will give you the Hive Poetry Collective podcasts. This is KSQD Santa Cruz, 90.7 FM. This is the High Poetry Collective, and I'm your host, Julie Murphy. Tonight, we're talking with Barbara Rockman, Santa Fe poet. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm wondering, because marriage is such a big theme in this book, maybe we could read another poem um, on this topic. Um, let's read the Assembled Discourse. Okay. The Assembled Discourse. Blade enters fruit. Juice covets it. Keys rise. A pianist presses down. The heron tips its underwing. Light fills it. Opposition ferries us shore to shore. Night on one continent, dawn on another. She eats meat. He shivers. He harvests, she lies in a furrow of thorns. He reaches, she reverses, and this omits unrecorded innuendo. For each resolution, table of crumpled documents and a floor spiked with broken pens, we inch toward tolerance, yet force the raft into back current. Like this, we marry, we split, spit slogans, split chores, declare heresy, believing we know what concord means. 
our sources muddied, snagged by cattails, we slog the opposite bank. When women proclaim, men whisper. Table tugged apart, gaping, we add leaves. The surface appears seamless. Clean paper anchors each place. Dissenters slouch and snicker. When one tips back to yawn, the other scratches a new doctrine, floor on which their chairs scrape. Wonderful, wonderful. Such a strong poem. Um, again, listeners, I know you can't see this poem on the page, but one of the things in just its structure is that um, there's no punctuation in this poem. All of the pauses are managed by a little bit of white space between the phrases, small stanzas, everything is in little fragments, which delivers a very strong feeling. Yeah. Yeah, and I was thinking not only about marriage in this, but any gathering of men where they are creating a new document or a law or legislation and how easily the woman's voice is sidelined at that table. Mm -hmm. So for for me, that was also hovering in this poem Mm -hmm. and maybe in fact was the initial impulse for it. But then it became very clear that um, like this, we marry felt kind of brazen actually to write that. <laughs> but, um, and, it, and it isn't as if I have um, animosity towards marriage, but I think there are truths to be told about marriage that it's not easy. And um, I think that's one of the things I wanted to highlight in these, in these poems is the hard stuff, the unsentimental stuff about marriage. And, um, and also to show the deep love and affection. So I added, there are love poems in this book. I think all these poems in some way are love poems. Yes. Uh, love to an imperfect institution that yes. um, we navigate the best we can. Yes. And, and, you know, in this poem, just the opening, blade enters fruit, juice covets it. Uh, like you have to keep reading after you read that line. It's just uh, such an amazing opening to this poem and it really sets the tone. It's not just the blade, it's also the juice. Yeah, I was very much trying in those three lines to find those images that were the black and the white, the yeah. yin and the yang. The, yeah. yeah. That word opposition, shows up in this poem. There it is. There it is. Much to my amazement. (laughs) Right, and it ferries us shore to shore. Mm -hmm. And then that that ferrying becomes kind of a guiding metaphor through the rest of the poem. There's that back and forth, and um, you come back to the water, force the raft into back current. We slog the opposite bank. Like, you keep coming back to that back and forth. It's really quite remarkable. I, I also love how you don't tie things up. Yeah. You let them be as, as they are. 
and the, the last line in the poem, floor on which their chairs scrape. Yep. Left with imperfection. Yeah. Backing away, coming towards whatever that image might mean for the reader. Um, but I think the sound alone yeah. is, it's uncomfortable. It's yeah. unfinished. It's, you know, we're backing away from that table and there's that scratching sound as well as those broken pens that are yes. scattered on the floor. So it, it's, it's not a war zone exactly, but <laughs> it's, been, it's been a challenging uh, table to be at. Right, and, and I love those lines, the table tugged apart, gaping, we add leaves, the surface appears seamless. You know, I th think that really speaks to a long marriage mm -hmm. of, um, you know, this speaker in this poem is experienced, she's gained wisdom. It's not love's first blush, it's not the honeymoon, it's not this disillusionment early in the marriage where you realize it takes work to yeah. keep <laughs> that love growing. It, it, this is a, a very experienced, wise, trusting voice that's telling us about this. Yeah, that's good to hear. And that's, um, I think I felt that voice is not heard a lot. So I'm, I was glad to put these poems out into the world. Yeah, I was wondering, you know, if maybe you could share with our listeners a little bit about what propelled these marriage poems and, and kind of what the response to them has been. Um, I think they were, you know how we write out of great need to understand our lives better. And I yes. certainly was over the years, though things have mellowed considerably. Um, but over the years, I needed to write these poems to make some sense of my own marriage. The ups and downs, the closeness, the distances, the I want to get away, I can't wait to get out of this thing, I can't wait to get back. You know, I mean, it, it's been um, just real life. And so I wrote them as a way of. Um, honoring that this is the reality of marriage and also as a way of um, working through and healing some of my own discomforts and um, longing to leave and, um, and longing to honor the intimacy and tenderness of it all too. And so there's all of that in this. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and then once it was all done and in the book, it's become evident that um, this is a lot, this is the truth for a lot of readers. A lot of people have shared with me that this is the reality of marriage and thank you for not sanitizing it or sentimentalizing it. And um, making it real. So that, that's been gratifying. That's great. A lot of the poems of domestic experience continue to be marginalized. I'm wondering what you might say to other women poets who want to enter into this material or, you know, who are writing quieter poems about things close to home. 
I would welcome their bravest books because those are the books I want to read. And I, you know, after reading Sharon Olds when I was first starting out and Marie Howe and Evan Boland, women poets who I think were early on just brave as could be in terms of telling us the reality of the domestic life. Um, I think it's important. I think it continues to be important. I think, you know, all of us are, grew up in a family for better or worse, however it was. We all had a mother, we had a father somewhere. Um, we've witnessed relationships, we've been in them. And um, we live in houses with kitchens and backyards <laughs> and all of that is my material. I mean, in many ways I write very close to home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's very effective. And I would encourage other women to claim that territory, That's to great. continue to. I mean, it is changing, but when I first, you know, 18 or 19 years ago, when I first seriously started writing poetry, it wasn't as open a subject as it is now, and it continues to open, which I think is terrific. Absolutely. And to hear men writing about the domestic is fantastically inspirational to me. You know, Galway Cannell's wonderful poems about his son padding into their room in the middle of the night and climbing into bed. I mean, I would also encourage men to write these poems. I want to hear those poems of marriage and child rearing and living in a house with a family. I think it's a huge and wonderful, rich subject. Absolutely, and it's really such intimate human experience. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, it makes me wonder, Barbara, like there, there's such intimacy in so many of your poems. And uh, I'm wondering if that feels, you know, as a, as a writer, if that feels exposing to you or vulnerable. I think um, early on writing, I was more hesitant than I am now, but um, I'm getting older and I think I risk more in my work. And I, I think I write, as I said a minute ago, what I want to read too. I mean, I'm claiming a braver voice, um, claiming that other people's opinions don't matter to me as much as they might have 10, 20 years ago. And yeah, it's, it's a question of being true to myself and true to my voice and true to what I need to speak. So yeah, there've been, you know, my husband has attended dozens of readings from this book and <laughs> he clearly is a subject here. And he's been an, an amazingly supportive. Um, he is probably my greatest support in, in my writing. And, you know, he's had people come up to him and said, well, how did you feel about that poem about my husband comes home from work, which is pretty dark. And his experience working for a period of time was dark. He wasn't happy. And there it is. And I think there are a lot of homes where, the man comes home from work and 
he's not happy. So there's, there's now a poem about that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's been interesting too. My grown daughters have had different feelings about hearing some of these poems. I think they, more than I, or readers of poetry have been, oh, mom, I don't know. Maybe you shouldn't say that or you shouldn't read that when dad's here. But they get it now. So <laughs> I'm glad to be a role model of being uh, honest and brave yeah. and and hopefully not tipping the balance as, you know, the conversation and people write, who are writing memoir always comes up. Are you hurting your family members by telling the truth? I don't, I don't ever feel like that's the case. And most of these poems my husband has read before they've been published. So yeah. that feels good. That feels, uh-huh. Well, there's also a tenderness in these poems. I hope so. Yeah. You know, like they, they, um, they feel very honest, but it doesn't feel like, quote, the truth Mm -hmm. is being used as a sword. Well, and they're poems. I mean, they're artifacts, they're lyrics, they're songs in some way. And so I think the fact that there is language that is resonant and beautiful and image driven yes. is it softens the it balances maybe yes. the subject yes the subject is held in a, a much broader container yes yeah the, the container of language but also the natural world is very strong yeah. in these poems and yeah. you know even this poem that you just read the assembled discourse that last line floor on which their chairs scrape we have the discomfort of the scraping but we also have the floor that's holding everything yeah, up yeah good that's great <laughs> thank you good observation I'd, I'd love for you to read the penultimate poem in this collection elegy for myself because it's such a great poem Elegy for myself. I have given up on being beautiful, on debt and detriment to the ones I never loved enough. The food was only fair most days, the weather lacking, and the sex not what I anticipated. Goodbye, climate of contempt, culture of claws. I was not meant to live this long never memorized the code or mastered the inflection my thumbs not fast enough goodbye tremble and blush spoiled pears raw fish keys and petrol paint samples and drawers toss my crumpled pages ink bleeds there's no hereafter finito adieu fury thorns books half-eaten orange Goodbye, my anthills, gold ring, socks. If there's another go-round, reconstitute me bold, less lonely. Sift me into the lake I love. Gorgeous. Just gorgeous. There's so many surprises in this poem. (laughs) You know, just the title, Elegy for Myself. You know, how's your reader? Like, oh, what? What's this speaker going to say? And that first line, the first lines, I have given up on being, line break, beautiful, on debt, and detriment, 
line break to the ones I never loved enough. It's such a surprise opening and encompasses so much. Uh, we don't expect that, and there's so much self-crimination in those lines, mm -hmm. self-implications mm -hmm. in those lines. It's not the elegy where this speaker is going to grandize herself. Yeah. <laughs> no. And, and then the poem carries on with some complaints. The food was only fair most days. <laughs> it's really speaking to the disappointments mm -hmm. and um, the ordinariness. Yeah. Uh, of life. You know, then there's this almost litany of goodbyes. Mm -hmm. and, and I counted in the poem, there's seven lists. You have seven oh, lists huh. in this poem. And they're all so uh, strong. All of the things, you know, what Tony Hoagland would call the thingitude. Yeah. This poem um, is so strong that we really feel the pulse of the speaker's life. Mm -hmm. in, you know, in the structure of this poem, goodbye gets repeated three times with an adieu mm -hmm. in between. And that's really moving the poem forward uh, in, in just such an intimate and real way. I love the turn when, when the speaker says, toss my crumpled pages. We again have a huge, a huge shift in the grammatical mood. We go from the declarative where the speaker is telling us and showing us to this command, toss my crumpled pages. And then it goes right back into the, de into the declarative, ink bleeds. So we have the broken body. We have the speaker's blood in the ink there. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the poem, there's another grammatical shift into the subjunctive. If there's another go around, after the speaker has told us there's no hereafter. Right. <laughs> we are not losing hope completely. <laughs> you know, the finito. Then there's this other shift. If, if there's another go around, reconstitute me bold less lonely and then the final turn which is an imperative it's another command sift me line break into the lake i love and there's just so much tenderness there yeah yeah i've noticed that um i've read this a fair amount and I mean, to me, it's also a playful poem. There's some, you know, gathering all those images was really just sort of this wild run as I was writing it. And it was one of these poems that just came barreling out of me unexpected. And um, I had been reading sonnets when I wrote this. So there was some of that rhythm in my consciousness. Yeah. But, and that language, the more archaic language, um, tremble and blush and yes. bees and petrol. I mean, that is not yes. language of the 21st century, really. <laughs> but um, it was fun for me to write this, actually, and um, how true a statement it is about my own feelings about death, I'm not sure. But... Um, it's one of those instances where a poem, I think, stands on its own for, without being 
confessional necessarily without being um, my own exact personal truth because there's a lot of uh, exaggeration in this poem. Yes. But there's also a lot of um, spirit in this poem. I mean, I feel like there's a playfulness in it, really. Yeah. And my parents are both, their ashes are in a lake. So there's this, for me personally, a reference to yes. this lake that I do love. And the goodbye climate of contempt, culture of claws. I mean, it's all these references to the culture of technology and media and speed and cruelty. Yes. And yeah. So it felt good to incorporate lots of things that I think many speakers probably might be happy to get away from. Well, yes, and I, and I also feel like it's another kind of uh, truth-telling. The speaker in this poem is not romanticizing. Mm -hmm. it's, you know, you've got spoiled pears and raw fish and paint samples yeah. and drawers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you know, it's all the undone and the less than perfect and, you know, also the beauty the oranges and the anthills and gold rings. I mean, there's just uh, so much concrete. It really brings the poem alive. So I feel like this poem and many others in the collection are touching uh, spirituality. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I mean, I, I, did not grow up with a deep spiritual practice. And I think as I've gotten older, I've yearned for some sense of God or faith or belief, whatever all of that means. And so that that's definitely a theme that's threading through here that, that felt actually very courageous for me to even write with a poem in here about prayer and others that, you know, like including the Hebrew language, yes. because um, for many years that was almost taboo in my writing and my living. And now I'm very curious and I'm, I admit to be a seeker at this, mm -hmm. at this time in my life. So my next book will actually incorporate a lot more of that. My, um, reaching towards God or faith or some kind of spiritual um, comfort. Oh, good. I look forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> I have really, I've really enjoyed those poems. And maybe you could, we've got just a couple minutes left, and maybe you could speak to, you know, this new project that you are working on and um, tell us just a little bit more about it. Well, it's partly what I said, I think. Um, it incorporates poems that are about my mother and um, her journey, which is very complicated, of growing up in a fairly anti-Semitic community and the fallout of that for her brothers and my many cousins and so on. So that's been something I'm curious about and I've investigated quite a bit. And what does Judaism mean to me? And, and, and then there's um, 
this literal searching for some sense of something greater than who I am. And, and it, there's a batch of poems in this next book about my dog, who's an Australian shepherd, a black dog with a white face, going out under the stars with me at night. And we do this frequently because I am often up at 2 a.m. There's been, I think I have six or eight, maybe nine poems about Sadie the dog, though she isn't named in the poem. She's the black dog in these poems. <laughs> but she's become like a muse to me and kind of a spiritual seeking companion or a saintliness or these odd things have happened with this dog. So there are those poems in the new collection as well. Okay. And uh, we'll see. It's, it's still in the works. Excellent. Well, I really look forward to it. There's so much more I feel like I could ask you and talk about. This hour has just flown by. But let's close, if you would, with one of the poems that will be in this new collection, Night Yard. Okay. So this poem has an epigraph from uh, one of my favorite poets, Bridget Pegeen Kelly. And the epigraph is, it is hard to find the right way in or out. And there also are a few phrases in the poem that are hers. Night yard. It is hard to find the right way in or out. You can have which flower you want, though the penstemon will no longer ring its bells if you pluck it. Take the coreopsis. True, its green feathers will rash your hands. Its bright suns shrink at your touch. And the roses, pale as antique linen, will fall into your cupped palm, break into frail layers. Close your hand or the breeze will rob you. Dear sweetling, I call the black dog as we turn our heads to stars. 3 a.m., the flowers dead to us. Garden disappeared by night rebels, but our feet steady on invisible earth. The dipper pours her milk upon the dog's back. She's suddenly star-freckled and frisky. Blessed the only way out of the ring of fire in which we live. One kindness here, one shared joke. Helpless, we wake and pace abandoned yards. We wander as if we had a destination, but the heart's accordion folds, roads and mountain ranges creased so often, trace no scenic byways. Do not ignore beauty's markers, the dog at the dark door, the lover who sleeps through your going out and your coming in. Beautiful, just beautiful. Well, it's been a pleasure to speak with you, Barbara. I hope we get to share another conversation soon. Thank you so much for having me, Julie. This was fun. You've been listening to the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. I've been your host this evening, Julie Murphy. Good night. Be well.